Sisters in the Shadows is in aid of Nordoff Robbins. Nordoff Robbins is the largest independent music therapy charity in the UK, dedicated to enriching the lives of people affected by life-limiting illnesses, isolation or disability. Their music therapists are expertly trained to tune into each movement, reaction and expression of the individuals they work with to discover how music can enrich their lives. They are absolutely brilliant. But they receive no government funding and so rely on the generosity of their supporters. Charities like Nordoff Robbins are really struggling these days and need your help more than ever. As a musician and a music lover, I know firsthand of the healing powers of music. It can lift your spirits, unite people and touch your heart in ways nothing else can. And the amazing therapists at Nordoff Robbins use that power to help some of the most vulnerable people in society. If you love music and care about people, and I know you do, I ask you as a proud ambassador of Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy Charity to help support their important work today. Just go to nordoff-robbins.org.uk to find out more. That's nordoff-robbins.org.uk. Darlings, and welcome to my show, Sisters in the Shadows, Women in Blues and Jazz. I'm Colette Cooper. In this series, I'm looking at the amazing impact and influence women have had and still have on the development of blues and jazz. Today's episode is dedicated to my hero, the one and only Bessie Smith. Because of Bessie that I am a singer today. Bessie Smith, the first lady of blues, widely renowned during the jazz age, nicknamed the Empress of the Blues. She was the most popular blues singer of her time. She was regarded as one of the greatest singers of her era and was a major influence on fellow blues and jazz singers such as the wonderful and unforgettable Billie Holiday who absolutely adored Bessie. Bessie had an impoverished upbringing and used to busk with her brother on the streets for pennies. Then she joined another amazing, renowned blues singer, Ma Rainer. The two became great friends. They performed together as they traveled around the circuit. But Bessie's success really came in 1923 when she signed to Columbia Records. Her first recordings, one of which, Downhearted Blues, was a huge hit. And so was Bessie. And the rest is history. It seemed like trouble Going to follow me to my grave Today I'm talking to the gorgeous musician, broadcaster and writer, Huey Morgan. Not long ago, Hugh and I enjoyed a little glass of wine over Skype to talk about our shared love of Bessie Smith and more. I started by asking him about his book, Rebel Heroes. I never loved In your book that you wrote um so it's um rebel heroes you talk yeah. about bessie smith in there yeah. don't you? was she one of the first female artists that you heard of when you well, were growing yeah, up you know, or? I'll, I'll try to i'll try to nutshell this in a way i was raised yeah. by my mom in new york city in the 70s right so my mom was judy collins kind of you know uh there, there was some like ray charles and stuff like that going on some willie cologne but 
for the most part, it was like, you know, very, very particular female singer songwriters, right? So what I remember, I don't know, it must have been in in some kind of like music magazine. I'm assuming it's Rolling Stone because that's the only periodical in the 70s that my mother would have had in the house. And it was Judy Collins. And I remember my mom had it because she was a big Julie Collins. I remember reading it and she was talking about what, what inspired her and Bessie Smith was somebody that came up. And I was like, all right, I, I must have remembered that name for 25, 30 years until the internet came around. Right? Yeah. And then I was like, you know, who's this Bessie Smith? That, it was before that. I think I had a couple of her records. I think I bought some 45s back in there, 78s maybe. And in any event, I, I just always thought there was something really compelling in the way this woman was so... It's the dichotomy. She was so smooth, but yet yeah. so rough around the edges and so such a raw emotional nerve, right? And I just thought, that how did that happen back in the 30s and the 40s in America? How did, yeah. I mean, because you, you know, as, a, as, a, as a, a white kid from New York, you, you don't know what happened down south in, in the previous generations, right? But you can yeah. always imagine the worst, right? So if you're imagining the worst, but yet Bessie Smith can thrive, in this, you know, this containment, really, what they were doing to black folk in the South. Yeah. It, it, it's the it's a triumph of the spirit. So I was really was always trying to see her as she wanted to be seen. So when I wrote the book, I had to I had to cut out a good chunk and like really find out a lot about her. And, and it was great yeah. finding those things because when you do research for books and things like that, you realize that you're you're only scratching the surface of why you love somebody. Then you realize there are so many other uh, variables of, in play that, as to why you love them. And you know, like she used to wear the twenty the twenty dollar gold pieces around her neck and a chain, so that's like original bling. You know, I'm yes. diamond necklace and all that. <laughs> yeah. on me, right? All that kind of like really cool swagger, and then. Then, then, she then had you realize, swag. She has swag. Didn't she? I mean, but and just the voice and all the stuff. Imagine it was always. You think about how, like, you know, the Stones or Led Zeppelin were doing their touring. All right, now imagine that before any, because there were two different worlds at that point. There was, like, Black America and there was White America. So Black America doing whatever the Black America is doing. And Bessie Smith is running it. And happily, you know, taking all these young boys that she meets at the gigs on little road trips to, you know, Vegas. You know, I mean, not like girls. Atlantic City. And girls. <laughs> yeah. She was so unapologetically her. Yeah, yeah and authentic at the same time that she's always been one of those women when I think about, well, when I wrote about rebellion and people being compelled to make music, she was the archetype of all the, the rock and roll heroines that have followed her, is soul and, blues and all that stuff. Even, you know, Maria Callas, I think yeah, had a little Bessie Smith in her, you know? She was just, um, you just wouldn't mess with Bessie Smith, would you? You just wouldn't mess with her. <laughs> you know, she'd knock your teeth out, you know? She when would you knock your teeth she'd out. She'd take the chain off and crack you in the head with it. And that, that's what, and that must come through in her voice, because when I first heard her, it was my dad who told me to listen to her. So when I listened to her more, I just loved this powerful voice. And it's just, she's raw. She's mm-hmm. raw, but she's singing of that time. But you can hear that she's untrained. And, and if you think about the way life was different uh, creatively for someone back then, the process was probably completely different. Yeah. There was no time. Um, there was really no time for people who weren't 100 percent authentic. Like that's why she's so amazing, because nowadays we have people who can maybe sing a little bit like her and can act a little bit like her. But deep down, there's no way in hell they could hold a candle to how she had to live her life and the adversity she overcame, yeah. and how that 
ingrained itself into her voice and her inflections and the way she sang a certain phrase because you knew it was real. It was from here. Absolutely. It, wasn't it was contrived. She didn't watch it. She wasn't in the Mickey Mouse Club when she was young. You know, all that kind of stuff makes you realize yeah. that it was such a, a trail that was blazed yeah. by this woman. I mean, she exactly. made it possible for for other women to follow her. I mean, Eddie James, people like just like really close behind her, you know, were, yeah. were, were like Janis Joplin, huge Janis Joplin, Joplin, yeah. early, Janis early recordings. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Early recordings of Janis Joplin. It was almost like an impersonation. And of course, you know, she, she paid for the headstone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's isn't yeah. that a great story that she, she did that? Over 30 years, she didn't have... on oh, Mark Grave. And that's great that Janis Joplin did that. And you can hear, obviously, with her, she's a massive influence. But I always think there was absolutely no acting in Bessie Smith. It wasn't yeah. like... Uh, there was no ego. There was no, like, putting on an image. Like, as we see a lot of musicians do today and artists because they make, you know, they turn themselves into a brand and they want... Yeah. Imagine saying that to Bessie, like, Bessie... Yeah, maybe we're thinking over here at at, uh, at Capitol Records that maybe you should. <laughs> you can use the just the sake of the white folk. Maybe tame it down a little bit. Just like white folk, they listen to my music. <laughs> it's, it's it was just. I think the way we're kind of mitigating creativity nowadays, it, it, it it's definitely killing a lot of the good shit. But I think anytime you try to grab something with both hands, it slips between your fingers. I mean, that's a great metaphor for creativity, right? But yeah. I think that's what's happening now when we're seeing a lot more authentic, authentic people making music with stories that other authentic yeah. people want to hear and experience. Yeah. And, you know, you see a lot of that because I think the advent of the Internet social media craze where you can like, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons Hillary Clinton didn't win the election because everybody was like, oh, she's full of shit. You can see she's full of shit. And yeah. 10 years ago, she would have been president, you know. I know. So, that's so true. The yeah, same social it's, media is so revealing. Yeah. I mean, it's transparent. I mean, I mean, I use social media as a platform if I've got a gig to promote it, yeah, yeah, even yeah. though half the time I'm like, oh, I fucking hate Instagram. I hate it. <laughs> oh, I'm going to use it anyway. I better promote my gig. But. It is as well. It's a it's an evil platform for people to use because, like you say, they're not authentic. They're not there just to make music or art. Yeah, and they just want to want to build a brand. You know. Yeah, and, you know, they want to build a brand, and it, they want. I don't know about you, but I got out of the Marines and I wanted to become a musician. I know. I, I love this story. I, I said, look, you know what I want to do? Being a musician. I remember telling this to this guy who was our manager for five minutes. What do you want to get out of this? I go rent. He's like, what do you mean rent? I was like, oh, I, I work 9 yeah. p.m. to 6 a.m. at this fucking nightclub. I don't want to keep doing that. It's hard. It's tiring. I got a dog. I want to maybe make some music, maybe do some shows, make some money. Yeah. I didn't even think past. I didn't even think about getting a record deal at that point. Yeah. So I was compelled to make music because I had tried the other shit. I tried to be yeah. a tough guy. That didn't work out. I ended up in the Marine Corps getting my head knocked around a lot. That didn't work out. So I was like, all right, I tried all the tough guy shit. Yeah. You just try to do something from my heart and be creative. And I, I think I got that kind of, I think I got that idea from people like Bessie Smith. And yeah. seeing people that were compelled to make music that weren't necessarily the perfectly trained. You're talking about Janis Joplin. The best thing about Janis is that wobble. That's where right. Where you're like, you you like almost like look at the speakers and go, oh my God, that's yeah. real. Like you feel yeah. it on your arms and your neck. Oh my God, yeah. That's yeah. what, that's what, but that's what creates the bond between a music lover and a musician. When you hear someone do something that rings true to you, you can't yes. ever take that away. So that's why people like Bessie Smith, you know, here we are, what, you know, 
60 years after she's died talking yeah, about talking it. about her she'd be loving it yeah yeah but, so, asking, for, asking for us to get yeah. some of the more creative words out of the way right? but, but it's so true if you it's just about if you just want to be creative you don't think about you don't you're not thinking about the bigger picture oh i want to get the record deal oh, i want to be famous yeah. because at the time you're just in oh i can well, do this right. oh, oh i might make some music i might make some money from it oh but but you don't even think that sometimes sometimes you just think oh i get to go and sing in pubs yeah yeah, yeah sing in front of people i can sing and entertain mm-hmm. you know and i i think that's that's quite nice and and that's the authenticity of it uh, like well, your world just, small right your world was small i remember oh. when we asked you to live together there was this place called Soul Kitchen that was this really nice nightclub. A friend of ours used to let us in for free. And all these dreads used to go there. We used to buy weed from them. But only one of us could afford to go in because we only had a certain amount of money. And so if they yeah. nanomite me, I'd go in. Because our world was small. They, that's what you did. You went you bought weed you brought out to your friends, right? Yeah. You did it for your friends. You did it for your immediate circle, maybe your block, at best in your neighborhood, right? And yeah. then, you know, the social media thing comes and nobody's world is small anymore. Everybody's world is everybody's world. It's this big, huge place where... People 5,000 miles away can tell you you're ugly and you get upset about it. I know. And it's like, what? I don't get it. And the, the idea of everybody liking what you do is ridiculous. If you're, I know. If, if you want to be a musician that everybody likes, there are obvious people that we know about that do that kind of stuff. But I mean, just they're writing for other people, they're singing yeah. and doing something for a crowd when you're not doing it for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I understand it being a business. I was in Cuba. Yeah this time last year hanging out with this guy Roberto Fonseca I did this documentary yeah. on BBC and it's Huey Morgan's Latin music so I'm hanging out and learning about all the stuff that I love I meet this guy well I've known this guy Roberto Fonseca he's a Cuban guy plays piano like a, like a god his last record Yesin was like one of my favorite records of last year anyway I'm hanging with my man he's like Huey how you doing and I'm setting some camera shit up he takes me to the studio I'm like I'm alright I'm just you know, I'm working a lot man. he goes you know what you have to do and I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you're an artist. You're working right now, but you have to be an artist. You have to take time out of your day and create something. Uh, yeah. And it was kind of weird because I was like, but I'm doing what I love to do, but I'm, I, I wasn't actually being a musician. I wasn't being an artist. I was working, you know? So yeah. There's a difference, isn't there? Yeah. To make that distinction, you have to, you have to consciously, it's like having, you know, I got young kids, so it's like consciously taking all that adult shit, getting rid of it and being a kid and pretending. So, um, you know, I'm your biggest fan, Huey, so, and you know we are completely locked down anyway every Saturday. We've always been locked down. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I'm lucky when I'm doing the show from here, right? So yeah, exactly, me, yeah. Me and T-Bone and Tom Bett, we do like this three-way call video thing, and we just kind of do it all at one time. Yeah. You know, it's 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 good that we can still do it, because I know a lot of people, especially that I, that I that are in touch with me personally, like you text me like yourself and Mike. Yeah. People really appreciate what we're doing. So I'm more than happy to do it. Oh, no, it's brilliant. Just brilliant. And it cheers me up knowing that it cheers oh, other people up. So it helps. It does. It's, it's the, the self-perpetuating idea is like, if are I you, feel good, that people feel good, it makes me feel good even more. So Are you actually enjoying recording it from home or are you missing going into the building? Well, uh, I'm in the building on a Saturday morning at usually 10 a.m., 9.30. No one's there. So I didn't really – I used to come in – on Friday afternoons, I record my Radio 2 show, which I still do. I yeah. do, frankly, miss going into London and having a night in London and just being outside of my house because I appreciate my house when I come back. I appreciate yeah. my wife and my kids more. But, you know, the thing is, if you asked me back then, two, three months ago, what do you want more of? I'd say more time with my family. 
Yeah. And I got that in spades. And it's I wouldn't trade it for the world. I know a lot of people are like, oh, that's crazy to to be thankful for it. I'm not thankful for this whole thing. I'm thankful that I found a why. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Absolutely. why it happened? It happened because I I wanted to spend more time with my kids. And here I am. Yeah. This podcast is all about women in blues and jazz. And mm-hmm. um, we've spoken about Bessie Smith and um, and your love of her. Are there any other um, of your favorite female artists you can think oh, of within the, the late, genre? The recently late Betty Wright. Yes. I mean, it, it's... Yeah. It's weird. I mean, it, it's really weird how this is, you know, I mean, the, we just heard about Little Richard. We heard a lot yeah. of musicians of a certain age are really going through it uh, and not coming out, not coming out the other side. There were so many people that were not the, the mega stars that I was always because, you know, like I think if some people are like we were, if there's a really superstar, it's really bright. You tend to turn away from that because it's a little too bright. It might give you a headache. But someone who's not who's near that big bright light is probably as interesting or maybe more interesting because they don't yeah. want to be bright light. Yeah, uh, I kind of agree with like that. The shoe artists, the people that yeah. are doing it because they got to keep doing it or it all doesn't make sense. This whole life shit doesn't make sense if they're not. Yeah. So people like, you know, Betty Wright. I mean, when I was when I was growing up, I was talking about my mom's record collection. There was that edit in Nice record. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I like to think I can spin a yarn on stage in between songs. But Ella Fitzgerald and Nice, and it's also Nice in the, what was it, 1960s or something, 62 or something? Yeah. Maybe even late 50s. So not everybody spoke English. I mean, it was post-war. So the people understood Yankee, yeah, that. But she's out there just slaying. And, you know, I've always thought that she was the woman that really showed me what it was like to be very gracious, but also really running the show as she's doing on that record. So I always thought that was a real paradigm to be to be emulated really yeah no you're absolutely right you know there's some great there was great powerful female singers around and and are today and who do you well, like feel I'm talking today to right now <laughs> oh no i mean no i mean like today who do you feel like not just vocalists though but who do you feel like who's coming through um instrumentalist in blues and jazz that you can think of as shining through now. Well, I mean, there's that, I forget the name of the Australian woman who played with Jeff. She's really young and she's just like the best bass player I've heard, like Tony Levin. Oh, you mean Ty Weakenfield? That's it. Because her name Ty is short for a a, a girl's name, obviously. But yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's brilliant. I saw her play with Jeff Beck in Port Chester, New York. Right. I, used to, oh, I, was back, right. I was back home doing something and yeah. guy, Uncle Mike, who's my, uh, who's the A&R guy who signed the criminals back in the day, used to work, yeah. home, used to be A&R for everybody. Anyway, he took me to this Jeff Beck show and she's playing and she's killing it. And she's just so unbelievably amazing too. Oh, I've got to get her on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And she's, and, and you know, I didn't hear her speak, but I'm obviously, she's probably got some stories playing with Jeff Beck, but she's, I bet she does. I, I bet, I'd be, I'd be. I doubt she's in her thirties. I really do. I think maybe she's very, very young. Maybe yeah. just in her thirties. But she could be an old soul. She's an old soul. Yeah, but just you know, if you watch her play, like the thing is, go on YouTube after this and just check her shit out. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, there's no way, shape, or form. It's like I would imagine, you know, Prince had that that band, uh, Third Eye Girl, or whatever it was called. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. girls just these monster musicians that he spent ten years trying to find and all that stuff. She's like one of those women that you're just like, God damn, this is incredible. Oh my God, got to get her on. So, you know, you recorded with B.B. King. Yeah. 
on your um, uh, the Mini Bar Blues song. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Go on. Was it great? Tell us a bit well, about yeah, it. Well, it was, uh, I met him at the Q Awards. I guess it was 97. We got like, uh, we got the award for Best Newcomer, right? Yeah. And B.B. Uh, King gave us the award. And, you know, we were all flabbergasted. I mean, if, if you could say who would you want to play guitar like when you talk it to like the 15-year-old me, I'd say B.B. King and Eddie Van Halen. And wow. if you look behind me on the wall, there's a black and gold Gibson single cutaway that's a lot like Lucille, but it's my version of Lucille. That's gorgeous. And Eddie Van Halen and Frankenstein. So when I met him, I was like literally hands were shaking, you know, just the whole thing, Mr. King. And he's like, whoa, whoa, Mr. King was a prophet. You call me BB. And I was like, uh, and that just <laughs> spun around my head for like three minutes. Yeah. So I couldn't get it together. <laughs> anyway, he was really nice. And then we saw him in the Jules Holland gig because we were doing the Jules Holland show on that same kind of trip. And uh, he called me over and he handed me Lucille. And I was hold, I held, he said, give me your guitar. Let me see that thing. It was this Chet Atkins that I have. And he's like, hey, I know Chet. And he starts playing it, right? And I'm holding Lucille like this. And he's like, he looks up, he's like, Huey, hold it like a, hold it like you love it. And then I went, oh, okay. And I went like that with it. And he was like, okay. And then he went back to playing my guitar. And after a while, he kind of traded guitars back. And I said, wow, Lucille's really nice. She goes, yeah, she is, man. But like any, like any good woman, you got to give her the good stuff, right? So I was like, oh, yeah. my God, what do you mean like that? And so we try to get all this wisdom from him. He's like, you got, your heart has to be true to any woman. And I'm thinking, man, B.B. King is laying all the signs down on 28-year-old me. <laughs> and I'm walking away like this guy, you know, he's got it. So anyway, years, a year or two, I think a year passed, and he was in New York. And uh, we hung out a little bit, and uh, he was like, what are you guys doing? I was like, well, we'll put this new record together. And he's like, well, what does it sound like? And I said, like, kind of like our first record, but better produced. And he's like, How, who's producing this one? I go, we are. But we read a bunch of uh, instruction manuals because we used to read the SSL instruction manual and the Neve preamp. Everything you had an instruction manual, we'd read it because we didn't That's want brilliant. to pay a producer. We wanted to do it ourselves. Yeah, fair so, enough. Good. So he's like, hey, you've got to let me come by. And it turned out he couldn't come by the studio on the trip that he was in New York in. But... He, he got in touch with us and said, hey, what do you got that you think I, that I'd, I'd want to listen to? We had the song Mini Bar Blues, which is about any musician's best friend. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, that's brilliant. Yeah. And he dug it. It was like a little bit of a swing blues kind of thing that I, I think I might have written with him in mind as like a very big in, influence in me. But also because we like doing those kind of like loungy swing kind of blues songs. And we sent it to him and he sent us back. Uh, we, we didn't ask him to play on it, but he sent us back two takes of the song on like ADAT. Like we just synced that up to what we had and it would just, it fitted perfect. And we were like, this is before Pro Tools, right? So yeah. this sent us like these tapes and we we're like, oh shit. And we put them in. It was like perfect. We we're like, wow, take one. Yeah. yeah. Well, we want take two. We can, we can only, we can only have one guitar on the track. We can't have both of them. Like, I bet you're dead excited though when he said that. You're like, oh my God. Oh yeah. It was, I mean, it was, you know, he was super gracious and super nice. And like, you know, we tried to pay him and he started laughing. Oh. Yeah. It was just, it, well, his manager started laughing. And I guess that must've been BB don't want your money, man. You know, kind of thing. You meet someone like that and they are like that. And they are true, true musicians who just want to, Play. Play. Yeah, if you listen to that record he did with Eric Clapton, I mean, that was probably Eric Clapton's way of getting him in a, a retirement bonus and stuff like that. But yeah. that record, you could tell that they're all just having a great time. And that's what you don't see a lot in music nowadays because a lot of bands aren't players. You know, they're they're like, you know, they'll have a couple people like say that, that band Heim, right? Those three yeah. sisters, right? 
they can play good together, but they need a drummer, they need a keyboard player, they need a bass player to kind of fill, fill it all out, right? Yeah. And that's cool. I'm glad that those women are making music, but like you don't have like actual people like learning how to be in a band and playing their instrument. We're like, you don't hear a lot of guitar solos anymore. No, you don't. You don't. Key changes or, or tempo changes. Everything's locked. Like you said, different. playing, like literally playing like a sport almost when you're on stage. Let's play. Let's see what yeah. you're going to bring. Yeah. Let's improvise. Like I was yeah. watching something on the internet yesterday. It's a uh, thing called the Woodstock Sessions on YouTube. It was like, um, what is it guy? Modeski, you know, Tedeschi and not, that was in Tedeschi and trucks. It was, it was like a couple of dudes that were like, you know, just sitting in and playing stuff. And you could tell that they just had an idea of what was going on, but they were playing it. Like it was a jam band kind of thing, you know? And it was yeah. really great to see that and young guys doing it and doing it really well and having, having fun. Chops, the blues chops. And usually yeah. like, you know, the guys that are playing their music, the ones that I come across on six music, it's like, you know, like the Fontaines, right? Which are great. They're great guys, but they're a punk band, you know, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're not They're like the strokes. They're not going to, automatically get better because they've been playing together for a while. Like the strokes are, are, are infamously not a tight band and that's kind of what they do. They don't, they don't care. That's they the don't care. Thing. Exactly. They don't care. It doesn't have yeah. to be tight. Just, just roll and, with it. Go with yeah. it. And that's great and all, but then you see stuff like, you know, you see, like I was watching uh, <laughs> a great video of Boston playing some festival somewhere, giant stadium playing that like interlude into a long time, you know, that whole thing in the beginning of that record that has all these instrumental breaks and this stuff. And there are four guys and a singer. So four guys and a singer making all that noise and doing it really, really well and moving the tempo around and shifting it and playing ahead of the beat, behind the beat. And as a guy who's a, like, a That's great. That's like great. I love seeing that because I'm like, yeah, wow, that shit's still alive. And I just don't find myself seeing a bunch of it now. I'm sure there's probably going to be more because people have to do that now, but well, I think because as well, oh, you will, you'll know this. It, you used to, be, used to be able to get more time making music, where now a lot of the labels want people to rush and churn out the music yeah. fast for the money. Yeah. You know, and I saw an article the other day where some lady who's in the XX, uh, I, I don't know who the lady is in the band, but she said she's given herself six weeks to write and record an album. I'm like, well... Unless you have like a whole shitload of ideas ready to go right now, that's a bad thing to do. Because I like, think so. You're just rushing it. Why rush it? Why just don't take your time like a diary? You know, just yeah. Well, I was talking to you about how the criminals are looking at this as our Asia, right? That's because yeah. it took Walter Becker like you know three days to find a comfortable chair. The story goes right. So <laughs> we got all the time in the world. We don't have to rush for it, you know. No, so, but you don't need to. You're accomplished anyway. You can just do it yeah. and enjoy it and take your time and mm -hmm. do it for you guys. No one else. Yeah, yeah you everyone's gonna love it anyway. But that's that's no. I think the idea is if we love it, it's all that matters. Well, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, granted, I have sold 10 million records by now, right? So it, maybe when I first started making records, I was thinking, well, if I think it's cool, because when you first get a record deal, the record label goes, what you're doing is cool, and everybody else yeah. is going to think it's cool, too. So you go, oh, okay, and you get a little bit of an ego issue going, because what yeah. you think is cool is cool to everybody, right? It's cool yeah. Not, yeah, it's cool to everybody. You know, Barry White, yeah, it's cool to everybody. And you forget that. It's not for everybody else, but it's for you. Because if it works for you, it may work for everybody else. Because if it, if it works for everybody else, it may not work for you. So if you yeah. use that as the formula, you always got to try to please yourself or your crew. You know, and as far as like my totally guys, well, hanging out with the same guys, you know, different dogs, same friends, you know. Now, when you were, when you first started out, so when you, you know, you played the tough guy, you didn't want to do that. I thought, right, what can I do? I want to make music. Yeah. Did you ever think at that time, 
that you were going to sell that amount of records or you'd be to where you are today? I think the weirdest thing that happened to me that, that made me realize this was something that was way out of the idea of I thought a success would be was I got my wax figure at Manitou Subs, right? But they made three of them with two heads each, apparently, right? So one head, so I, used to, I used to cut my hair in the summer and it would grow out in, in the winter and then I cut my hair in the summer so they had to have two heads. And I remember they were unveiling Manitou Tussauds on 42nd Street in New York City. And they're like, you know, they're like, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yay! Wolfgang Puck, yay! Rudy Giuliani, yay! Huey Morgan, they're like, who? I mean, because in New York, I mean, we maybe sold 30, 300 records or something, right? So I'm like, who's this guy? And this is like, this is like 1999. So by then we had released 100% Colombian and yeah, we, we were millionaires and it was great and all that kind of stuff outside of New York. No one, and this is before the advent of all that social media. So people didn't know. They were just like, who's this guy? And the lady was like, hey, he's a hometown kid, you know, this kind of stuff. And I realized, man, this is amazing. This is completely surreal that I came into this, this group with my friend because we were roommates and I didn't. I said he should slow down all those break beats. He was like, doo, doo, psh, doo, doo, psh. I was like, no, no, slow it down. Boom, boom, psh, boom, boom, boom. And we started doing it for fun. And now here I am getting a wax figure and no one knows who I am. Yeah, we all know who you are. No, You're no, the no, best. This, You're a this, superstar. The, 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 in New York City, yeah. it was just, it was like, shh. It was so amazing. And to this day, I always want to get my wax figure head and put it in my refrigerator <laughs> and like the freezer and tell somebody who's new to the house. The ice cubes are in there and just watch their face. <laughs> it's really intricate. The guy who I did, love that. The guy who did it was this Tibetan cat who's this really heavy artist. And they were making all these. They put you in a lazy Susan and they, they gradually turn you around like that. And they take pictures and shit. And then the guy comes up and measures like weird things like from the outside of this nostril to down here or whatever. And they make these. It's really bugged out. I, I'm sure, do you have, have you taken your kids there to Modern Two Swords yet? I think, I, no, I haven't, but I think my guys are not sure? there anymore because it's been a while since I was a pop yeah. guy. <laughs> so yeah. it's, I think they have them somewhere. That's why I think if, if this comes out, maybe some of Madame Two Swords, anybody works well, there, an usher or a ticket taker, talk to the boss. Yes. Buy a head. Yeah. I want to buy my yeah. head. One of them doesn't matter. <laughs> Do you know what you could say though? Um, you could say, look, if it may even still be there because I suppose they do have to swap, don't they, all the well, time? They kind of melted me down and made Justin Bieber. No, I know they'll definitely have you. You should say, look, 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 man, I'm coming with my kids. Can you can you just get me out so we can oh, show? Yeah, if you don't, I'll shame you on social media. Is it, is it true that when Lady Gaga first came out, and I remember when she came over to Britain and she had that funny hat on with the, the teacup and everyone's going, who's this? Yeah. And the marketing, I thought it was really clever marketing. They were saying she's the biggest star from America right now. And she turns up off, off the plane with this hat and a cup of tea and everyone's going, who the hell is this woman? Yeah. And there's this whole marketing, you, you must know this. And she's this big, big star in America. And she wasn't. Yeah. It was really clever, I thought. Well, I think in a lot of ways, there used to be a real, there was a market for uh, Americans that were really unique, right? And you know, I'm, I'm one of them. I'm one of them that when we came out, it was all Britpop. And we were lucky in that regard where we were very different to Britpop. So we were, there was an alternative there. Right? There was a juxtaposition. With her the same way, Jimi Hendrix was the same way. There was a lot of, even like a lot of those jazz cats from the, the 40s would come over and live here because they were like, yo, people down with this, you know, and that's. Yeah. Always did a thing about England where even if I, I guess the whole thing, the reason that Lady Gaga is such a star is that she could 
she could talk the talk, but she could walk the walk. Yeah, absolutely. and that goes back to yeah. Bessie Smith. Absolutely, I love Gaga. I think she's brilliant. Yeah, but it's funny though because nobody knew her in America. They yeah. just made up this big story, and we all believed it. We thought, "Oh yeah. my God, this is amazing!" Who is this crazy woman? And was it? Was the, I mean, did she had she put a record out yet? Or she probably signed to Interscope or something. They're like, she's yeah. going to be the biggest star in the yeah. world. So she put, she put yeah. a record out. Yeah, she put a record out, and it, she she must have the money must have been spent on the marketing. Yeah. So <laughs> she came out. We thought she was like huge, like Madonna, but yeah. nobody knew who she was in america so they just lied so we made a kind of big it's like oh my god and then obviously the rest is history yeah and, and you know if you believe I, I think believing in yourself as a as a female artist yeah in this day and age is possible because of people like bessie smith you could pull a really ballsy move like lady gaga did say tell them i'm a big star over there they won't check yeah. and you know because she backed it up with a really great song or a really great song the top the pop people like yo yeah. i believe it that's yeah. all that hooks, you know. And if, if it's the kind of thing Bessie Smith would do, if she thought, you know, you yeah, know, she'd yeah, look after her family. Okay, I've got to look after my family. Let's say I'm a big star in uh, yeah, da, yeah. Da, da. Well, then she was the phrase, What would Jesus do, right? People always say, What would Jesus do? What, what would oh, Bessie Smith do? Oh, what a woman. But saying that anyway about Bessie Smith, she's always known as the first queen of blues, mm -hmm, yeah. you know. But she also learned a lot from um, Ma Rainer. Yeah, it was yeah. Mulroney was maybe the uh, like you know when people talk about it, with Little Richard that he was the architect of what was going on. Yeah. Mulroney conceivably was the one like, look, you can do what you want to yeah. do, and here are the ways you can do it. I mean, Mulroney was also like probably ten years before her, so things That's were right. really yeah. And she taught her a lot. She learned a lot from her. She went on tour with her, and oh, she's amazing. Oh. Another great Maya Angelou quote: "When one woman stands up for herself, she stands up for all women." Right. When, when you see things and you hear things about Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and how yeah. she said, look, hon, you know, you got what it takes. This is what you might need to try doing. And any kind of help like that, I think, is really important. And you see sometimes and not all the time, but you see sometimes a lot of cattiness with women a, in, in the music a, business. Not, where they a, want lot. To it's a lot. Yeah. And, and I women think that for some reason, I, I feel I don't know whether it's because it's been male dominated, as we know, and they feel there's not enough space for women. So they feel they're in a race. And they, uh, and there's only room for a couple. There's only run room yeah. for a couple, and they've got to get there first. But I've always, I like to promote women probably more than I have guys. I like to feel like I could help women in whatever uh, any way I can, you know, because I think you need more than that. You need yeah. more of that in the industry. As I mentioned at the top of this, I was raised by a single mom, right? So I understand yeah. what women have to do in. In, in the professional workplace, they got to work 10 times harder sometimes. And that's, and that's just the standard, right? So, yeah. And I went, went and you know, like perhaps I, I was a little stronger. I said, I see a lot of women being catty to each other. I don't yes. think I see a lot of it, but I see it. And when I do see it, it, it makes, it makes it an unfortunate circumstance between the yeah. two women at that point. Yeah. Because no, everyone's different. There's room for everyone. You should just stand by each yeah. other and, and, learn and all these guys that we hiked up over the years, all these producers and whatnot are going down a dime a dozen, right? So there's good, yeah. the, the women need to step into these positions of power as well. Exactly. We love you, Huey. I love you back. It's good to see you guys. It's your family, right? I will, I will. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for having me. Gorgeous Huey Morgan. You 
can hear him every Saturday morning at 10am on BBC Radio 6 Music. I never miss it. And Hugh's brilliant BBC4 series, Huey Morgan's Latin Music Adventure, is still on iPlayer too. So go and watch it. It's absolutely fantastic. That's the show for this week, guys. If you liked it, and I hope you did, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast platforms. And while you're there, go on, give it a review, even try and give it five stars. I accept nothing less, darlings. And if you fancy following us on Instagram, mine is at Colette Cooper. And the brilliant Huey Morgan is at Huey Morgan. And then Pod People UK is at Pod People UK. Sisters in the Shadows was presented by me, Colette Cooper, and is a Pod People production thanks to Mike Hansen, who's brilliant, and Jake Trappett, who's brilliant, for their production support, and you, most of all, more importantly, for listening. Ah! I'll be back in your feed next Friday talking to another amazing soul from the world of blues and jazz. See you then. <laughs>